and welcome to season three of Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. And I am still on my virtual promotional tour for my new book, Taste and the TV Chef, How Storytelling Can Save the Planet. You can watch the webinars at jillysmith.com. But while we're getting meaty with climate change, let me offer you a little joyful environmentalism with author Isabel Lasada. So I went down and met the gloriously grumpy Guy Watson on a morning when he was rather typically grumpy. He's got lots of swearing. In fact, it was enormous fun for me in the audio version when I was doing the book because I got to be him and do all the swearing that he did. Isabel isn't actually a food writer, but what's environmentalism if it's not about food? She's been writing about all the important things in life for the past 20 years. The Battersea Park Road to Enlightenment, From Tibet with Love, in which she has an audience with a and sensations, adventures in sex, love and laughter. The latest, The Joyful Environmentalist, is a romp through how low we can go with our carbon footprint. And as she takes me through her four food moments, I ask her why she's chosen to focus on saving the planet this time. Well, I've always written books that follow my passion, uh, Jilly, and I've been an environmentalist myself, I think, a sort of softer environmentalist for many years, as, as we all have, I'm sure. But I'd been reading books about environmentalism and I've been and I've sort of read all the main ones over the last two years. And they are all, without exception, fantastically depressing. And um, I don't think that helps us really engage with the topic. So my simple premise was to follow the, the guidelines of my previous books and work out a way that we can be environmentalists, but also follow our follow joy within the environmental movement because life is short and we're all going to be dead soon so the simple idea is to find ways to live our life that look after the planet but also enrich our own lives at the same time yeah and it's important to say actually that it isn't a food book you do talk about food and certainly Mm. the the moments that we're going to talk about are food moments it's a how-to guide to greening up your life isn't it you go through shoes I bought a fantastic pair of posu shoes after your recommendation and there's lots and lots of different ideas that you take us through we're going to focus in on the food bits now you actually do say Isabel, that you don't really enjoy cooking. Can you just fess up at this point? The Joyful Environmentalist is about looking at all aspects of the way we live. So it's about the way we dress, it's about the way we travel, it's about how we volunteer, it's about how we bank, it's about how we vote, it's about the energy in our homes. And so it's about the idea was to look at every single aspect of the way we live. And obviously, food is key to that. But I'm, I feel like an honoured guest on your food programme because it's not purely food. It's But obviously, as we move forward in, in this, hopefully, what we hope is going to be a new movement. And for, food is absolutely key to our life choices. Yeah. But yes, it's one of the issues I cover. Now, you are a vegan now. You've been a vegetarian for years and years and years, but you are now a vegan. Do you want to tell us why you became a vegan? It's interesting. I call myself a plant-based eater rather than a vegan. Um, The only differentiation really being is that I think um, vegans tend to eat more sort of vegan food. You know, the the things in the the supermarkets marked vegan. I don't tend to eat many of those. I I mean, it's not that I dislike them. It's just they, uh, some of them are a little bit processed. I did have my first ever fantastic vegan cheese recently, which was an interesting experience. But I I find all that, I find all that processed. Um, And so I live primarily just on fantastic um, organic fruit and vegetables is the main thing that I eat. And I'm very happily so. Um, But you don't eat dairy. 
I don't eat dairy. No, but I'm not, I'm not 100%. I mean, if I came over to your house and you offered me... My, I, do, I do have an interesting rule with, with eggs, which is that I will eat eggs if... Oh, there's my neighbour's cat has arrived. I will eat eggs if, uh, if someone can tell me the name of the chicken. There's a very good phrase that people use, you know, in the food world and trying to get it out as part of the national conversation. And Tom Hunt, who was on last week's. Yeah. So he talks about knowing your farmer. People will talk about shake the hand that feeds you. It's about knowing the provenance of Mm. your food, actually knowing where it comes from. If it's meat, if it comes from a high welfare farm that you absolutely know and you've probably met that farmer, that's the kind of way to go. It's it's called localism. It's part of the you you were at the webinar that I did last Friday. Um, Did you find yourself convinced about the kind of the role of animals in uh, saving the planet? Personally, no. I mean, the my trip to NEP, which happens at the end of the book, <clears throat> the end of The Joyful Environmentalist, uh, I do see that they have the only argument that I can see as a, as a vegan for keeping animals and killing animals because they are keeping animals uh, in a wilding environment um, and they're allowing the the herds to grow naturally and obviously because they're within a limited area ultimately they have to kill the animals or they wouldn't be able to keep them there and if you're going to kill the animals then it makes sense to use them to eat i suppose so i can understand that but personally my preference is not to eat animals um i i know that you know in the nep context and in similar contexts they do have a role to play but um I, it's an interesting thing, Jilly. In, in, in one of my books, in fact, in The Joyful Environmentalist, I think I tell this story, that I was travelling in, in Morocco and I meet um, a woman that she's from the... Uh, well, we'd, we'd call them Berbers, but they're more correctly called Amazing people. And she's a woman a little bit older than me. And through the translator, I ask her, when is she happiest? And she says, when she's with her cows... And I, I teased her and said, so not when you're with the men then? And she said, no, <laughs> definitely the cows. And I felt a certain envy because we don't know, we don't have relationships with cows, do we? That particular happiness that she's talking about, I've never known. We all know the relationships that we can have with dogs and the relationships that we can have with cats. And the more fortunate of us know the personal connection and relationship that we could have with a horse. And those all enrich our lives in such extraordinary ways. But we don't have that relationship with cows or certainly I've never had a cow that crosses a field specially to see me because I'm its friend and it, and it knows I'm coming and it yeah. wants to say good morning. And, and I think, you know, we have this incredible loneliness as human beings. Um, you know, almost as an epidemic, we have human loneliness. And that, that loss of relationship with animals, with all animals, is, is, is something that I feel very much. And, and so for me, I'd rather have 
a cow as a friend, as the vegans say, rather than as on my plate. I, I just don't want them on my plate. I want them in my life in other yeah. ways. Well, it'll be interesting when we uh, debate the issue with Rachel from Trenchmore Farm, because, of course, she does know her cows and she has that relationship with them. And, and as a result of that, a lot of the best restaurateurs in the country, particularly those in Sussex, uh, the localist ones in Sussex, will only use Trenchmore uh, beef because they are high welfare and they are part of a virtuous circle in in creating soil structure and making the soil healthy but let's talk about that first food moment where you were watching cowspiracy mm. um now it's more than just the the place of cows on the land it, when we're really talking about intensive farming we're talking about a kind of well the conspiracy against people understanding what intensively farmed meat is all about and its impact on the environment yes well, I mean, I quote your, you know, Tom Hunt from your last programme that there's nothing worse for the planet than the intensive meat industry. I mean, and they have this, there's this place in America with, I don't know if you know, it's miles and miles of, of cows and they call it Couchwitz. I mean, I just, and, and recently there's been a lot, I listened to a podcast called The Daily out of the New York Times and they spoken a lot about the the intensive meat factories in America where they're, they're, and the terrible conditions and the amount of COVID that's there and the way the people are treated and them chopping up the animals all day long. I mean, if we're going to have joyful environmentalism, as, uh, as I hope we all are, I hope we're all learning to be more and more, better and better environmentalists for the rest of our lives. Because as I keep saying to people, you know, if you're a dentist now, you need to be a dentist and an environmentalist. If you're a teacher, you need to be a teacher and an environmentalist. If you're a cook, obviously, you need to be a cook as an environmentalist, which is what your wonderful series is on. I realise that. And, and as we move forward, if we want to be our best possible environmentalist, as far as I'm concerned... A plant-based diet is, is just the most logical way forward. I mean, even the Telegraph, I've got a neighbour who reads the Daily Torygraph and he dropped me in something last week, an article finally in the Telegraph saying, eat less meat to save the world. I mean, obviously, they've got to make it sound like mockery. But nevertheless, they are advising eating less meat. And I'm thinking, well, OK, what about eating no meat? I mean, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. Plus the fact it connects with me, as I say, on a, on a, on a spiritual level. I don't want to be part of that suffering and pain and vileness towards these innocent creatures yeah it wasn't always so you were a meat eater as a young mum yeah all your life until your daughter was about six yes tell us about that that's your second food moment in the book well she led me on this I mean it was it was one of those moments that that really does stick out in your life. Yes, I was raised by my grandmother and my mother as a meat and two veg person. And um, I fed my daughter similarly. And one day, I forget exactly how old she was, but she was just reaching the age where she was questioning what was on her plate. And she said, what's this? And I said, it's lamb, darling, eat it up now. And she said, what, you mean like a lamb? And she's like joining the dots between lambs and lamb. And I said... Well, yes. And she said, you know, what, like a lamb with incredulity. And, uh, and, and the horror on her face. And she's like, but, but why? You know, but, but did it die? And I'm thinking, I can't lie to my child. So I said, well, well no, it, they killed it. Well, why? Mm. And I said, well, 
people have always eaten lambs. They eat lambs. But why? And she just starts to cry. And I just thought, you know, just the logic of it. People talk a lot about brainwashing, don't they? About, you know, they don't like this movement or that movement or how cults brainwash their children or things. But you, but we teach our children that it's okay to eat a lamb, but it's not okay to eat a dog, that it's okay to eat a pig, but it's not okay to eat a cat. We're all conditioned. And I think one of the wonderful things about this whole covid rethinking things is to is to question all our conditioning of these of mm. these matters mm. and i just couldn't i couldn't from that point she said well she didn't want to eat anything with a face so then i tried to smuggle a fish finger by her like <laughs> and a week later <laughs> codfish finger like what's this it's a fish finger darling what with fish i'm like and was it alive I'm like, okay i seem to have a natural vegan on my hands so, and I, I found it. I found it very irritating and very inconvenient. But she led me. Um, and so you started then having to create diff- different dishes to excite your child. So you're not going to live for the rest of your lives together eating really boring food. You're going to have to learn to cook in a different way. How hard was that? Um, well, I've never been. A, I've never been a cook. I mean, if my daughter was here, she would. She would say it's a miracle that she lived to tell the story. Really, <laughs> um, my my main meal for her was she, when she was growing up was something called bits and pieces. It works well with children actually, and it's it's just a large plate with you know bits and pieces. So like a number of beans and you know various peas, a radish or two, a, a bit of tomato, a bit of this, a bit of that. You know, and it was mainly all fresh. So, and uh, it, was, it was great me, actually, for kids because they like, like a little bit of everything. And, um, yeah, so she was raised on a lot of bits and pieces of whatever happened to be around. <laughs> I don't know how she lived. But your third food moment is about the vegetarian cookbooks that came your way. There was a, a very, very, very old cookbook. Uh, is it Gail Duff's vegetarian cookbook? Yes, Gail Duff's vegetarian cookbook. Thank you, Jilly. Um... And she has an amazing salad section. And because I'm basically a very lazy cook, there's a, there's a section in there with which we would now recognise this sort of food as a, as a normal plant-based eater's salad, which is a salad that contains more or less everything. You know, and it, and it was just a, a really, really... There's a, there's a couple of really good salads in there that I just started to make and have been making ever since, really. Just very simple, successful salads with nuts and fruit and, you know, all things that mix in together. Mm. Nowadays, I, you know, more and more people eat like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, people who listen to cooking the books um, will know that I spent an enormous amount of time talking to. I mean, it's, the whole series is talking to food writers, and mm. most of them are now talking far, far more about plant-based foods. Ottolenghi, which is on next week um, with Easter Belfrage, their new book, Flavor, is plant-based. Mm. Um, it has some extra things. So there's anchovies in it, for example. There's some cheese in it, but it is plant-based. And there's an enormous amount of ideas in there. Most people's cookbooks these days, Gil Meller, for example, you know, his first book was Gather. It was about you know like squirrels it was about byproduct food it's about food that you know is r- properly sustainable living <laughs> live living wild until it's not i just thought you, much you much said, better you said squirrels and i was thinking eating like squirrels and then in a moment <laughs> of horror i'm like oh my god no she means eating the squirrels yeah yeah, yeah just exactly eating little nuts like squirrels do <laughs> <laughs> but his latest book um is root stem leaf flower 
and everything is plant-based well that's wonderful uh not to say that he's you know he doesn't talk about eating all of the wonders that nature provides but everybody and certainly everybody i invite on this show has a sustainable agenda it is an enormous Mm. part of the food movement guy watson hasn't been on the program on this program yet i've interviewed him many times for the delicious podcast but your fourth food moment is going down to riverford and meeting the gloriously grumpy guy watson who founded riverford basically was the king of organic veg boxes way back Mm. Um, Mm, 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 tell me about going to riverford well, the idea, the idea, as I say, behind the Joyful Environmentalist was looking at the way I was living. So I look at the energy that comes in my house and I meet my energy provider. That's Juliet Davenport of Good Energy. And then with my food, I'm getting my boxes from Riverford. And so um, then obviously, as you say, meet your farmer, go and find out what's going on there. So I went down and met the gloriously grumpy guy watson on a morning when he was rather typically grumpy he's got lots of swearing in fact it was enormous fun for me in the audio version when i was doing the book because i got to be him and do all the swearing that he did because i included it all i think he thought that i would edit the interview nicely but no i, I put it in all for word for word his swearing and everything i think he'd be because fine of course if you, if you ask him On behalf of my readers, I'm saying, but organic food is more expensive. Obviously, he nearly explodes like a firework because he's heard this time and time and time again for for many years. Um, But, you know, personally, I would rather spend more money on organic food. I don't drive a car, for example. I, you know, I live a very simple life, but I consider buying organic food an investment in my health. So, and, um, and, and an investment and the in the soil, presumably. I mean, an that's inve- the whole point, obviously. isn't it? Yeah. An investment in the soil, of course. He invited you to eat at the Riverford restaurant, where I have also had the best food of my life. Tell me what you discovered. Well, I ate a carrot, Jilly, uh, <laughs> but it was an extraordinary experience because it had been, I, I was like, what exactly have you done to this carrot? It tasted unlike any other carrot I've ever eaten. It Apparently it was sort of very, very slow roasted. I think they'd probably got some oven where they'd got it on a very low heat overnight or something. And so they didn't in any way distress the carrot by, um, by cooking it. They just kind of calmed it down very slowly until it became a soft carrot. No, and it was sort of slightly caramelised. And, and I just thought, yes, I mean, just wonderful vegetables, well cooked. Yeah. Which, in fact, is what Ottolenghi talks about in next week's. He does it with a celeriac. And so I did a three-hour roasted celeriac. And it does. It, oh, it changes yeah. the, the chemical reaction inside. It caramelises it from the inside. It is sweet. It's like a celeriac yes. you have never tasted in your life. I urge you to try that uh, recipe book. It's called Flavor. I will, I yeah, will. Yeah, and certainly listen to next week's uh, podcast. It's about so much more than food. You do... One of the things that I have really taken on board is clothes. I gave up buying new clothes a year ago and I'm still... This is the only jumper I'm, I'm sitting in right now that I have right now. And it is beginning to have some holes in it and I'm wondering what I'm going to do next. Um, going to pre-loved clothes shops is all well and good, but they tend to be leftovers from bloggers who are tiny. How do you manage the clothes? I'm, 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 very, I'm very engaged in your story about your jumper, Jimmy. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I would say that if you... 
visible mending is all the rage, you know. Ooh. So what you do is you is you mend any problems with your jumper in a way that it, that enhances your jumper that's so that's the first thing i'd say if it's an item that you love um and then i mean are you talking about a jumper i talk a lot i mean I, again a bit like where you're you're when you ask me about cows and i give you a kind of totally side story about a woman that who's happiest when she's with cows i mean with with clothes, I've got this little section in my book about clothes and love. Yeah. I don't know if you I remember it. I loved it. it. I've, I've taken it on board. But I've got a jumper that was, that was made for me about 30 years ago. It was knitted for me. And in every stitch when I wear that particular jumper is love. Mm. And I just feel loved when I'm wearing that mm. jumper in a way that normally we don't feel. On the contrary, we buy things now, those of us that still shop and buy new clothes, which I don't either, but when I, even when I did, actually, you have a slightly uncomfortable feeling. You don't know where it's come from. You don't know who's made it. You don't know whether the woman that made it has just been on that line for 12 hours a day and been paid nothing. And Well, if you, you think know, about it at all, and that's the point. If you... If, but, well, I, I suppose before I gave up buying new clothes, there was a period when I was still buying new clothes but not feeling comfortable. Right. I kind of went through that. And then eventually I thought, actually, I don't need any new clothes. They say that most of us have got enough clothes to last for the next 10 yeah, years. definitely. Um, even if we never bought... And, I mean, we, we don't often see people walking the streets naked, do we? <laughs> so we know that we all have enough clothes. Yes. And, and what's so lovely about... about not buying new clothes at all is that it really helps you appreciate the clothes that you've already got and enjoy the clothes that you've already got and then they say that we wear i'm sure you've heard this we wear 20 percent of our clothes 80 percent of the time yeah. and if you stop buying new clothes completely then you end up wearing the other 80 percent yeah and challenging yourself to wear the clothes that are unworn in your wardrobe and the crucial thing that i also learned i didn't know this was that if you do pass your old clothes on to charity shops and they are they need mending or they haven't been washed they'll be sent away to the developing world or to china oh they'll be thrown away they'll be got rid of basically they won't be resold basically they will have a massive carbon footprint on them so there's no point in doing that you say give them away i say well it it's, it's part, I've got a whole section about how we change our relationship with our clothes. We've basically got to stop giving our clothes to charity shops because what's happened, we've all felt okay because we thought, oh, well, if I don't wear it, I, I can just give it to charity. But we're not appreciating the fact that only 10% of the clothes in the charity shops are resold to the public and the other 90%, as you say, go off to do more damage in the world. So we've got to buy clothes now, if and when we do buy them, thinking that we're not going to be giving them away. So the clothes that we've currently got in our wardrobes that we don't wear, yes, I'm for having a little section somewhere in your house where you have your, the clothes that you love but don't wear, sort of washed, hung up, displayed. And then if you have a friend come round, you say to them, would you like any of these clothes? Have a look and help yourself. Um, it's so much more fun giving clothes away to friends. It is than yeah. giving them to charity shops. And if you're giving them to charity shops because they're basically junk, then you shouldn't really, be, really have been buying that in the first place. Exactly. So we've got to go through a metamorphosis where when we do buy clothes, we only buy very good quality. And then if we find we're not wearing it, then we, then we give it to someone that we love. 
basically. Absolutely. It is a joyful read. It's very funny. It's very light. But it gives us a massive amount of information. I learnt lots. Um, and I'm going to pass you on a reading list for all the amazing plant-based recipe books that I have come across um, that are all available on, on my various podcasts. Isabel Lasada, best of luck with the book. It deserves to be out there and for everyone to read it. Thank you very much, Jilly. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. Please rate, review and subscribe and do check jillysmith.com for the free webinars, past and future, on some of the themes in my book, Taste from the TV Chef. And don't forget to join me next week when I'll be finding flavour with Yotam Ottolenghi and Easter Belfrage. Thank you.